Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, I'm Barbara. I'm an alcoholic. John, thank you for inviting me to um, speak, and uh, I wanted to thank my beautiful friends, Sia and Marilyn, for coming over to support me, and some of my friends uh, from Portland who actually flew in to support me, Tim and Pete and Curtis, and my beautiful husband and Chris. Okay. Thank you for this award. <laughs> I'm done. Um, okay. I will qualify myself because that's what I was told to do. You're looking at a real alcoholic. And uh, I didn't look like this 15 years ago. Uh, I looked better, actually. So I thought, but uh, no one was documenting it, so it's just my opinion. And if any of you knew me back then, because I hit my bottom over in Hollywood, let me know what the real truth is, because I'm a little bit delusional in my thinking. My sobriety date is August 16, 1992. And my home group is the West Portland Group in Portland, Oregon. And my sponsor's name's Julia. And those are some of the things that... I need to have in order to be a member in good standing in Alcoholics Anonymous. I also don't drink newcomers, just as a little aside there, one day at a time. Um, I was uh, born in Northern California, and my dad's alcoholic. He says he's alcoholic. I didn't diagnose him or label him, and my mom is a codependent. So it was a beautiful dynamic in our family. I'm an only child, so there was a, a lot of focus on me. I've never had any broken bones. I've never been abducted. I've always been the center of their universe when he wasn't drinking and she wasn't trying to fix him. So um, I didn't register on the radar very well. I, from my earliest memory, never felt comfortable in my own skin. Um, I had horrible shyness. I barely could function as a little girl, and I have a new niece that's almost two years old, and she just runs around, twirls around the middle of the room, and she just loves all this attention and loves to have her picture taken, and I was just, you know, terrified of any kind of direct contact with humankind. It felt alien to me. It felt potentially dangerous, and um, I never, ever fit in. And I felt that way all the way through my young years. My mom one time asked me to introduce myself to a little girl across the playground. There was two of us at this playground, and I went into complete hysterics at the prospect of actually making contact with and initiating contact with another person, and I was like five. Um, and, you know, maybe that's normal for some kids. It wasn't for me. And I can tell you that when I was 16 years old, my mom had divorced my father, and the problem was taken out of our lives, we thought. And what happened was that um, we went to a wedding reception, and there were some popular people there. And um, I've said that I was very upset that the bride was getting all the attention. That ticked me off big time. Um, uh, and yet, if there were people over on the other side of the room that, that broke into laughter, I thought they were talking badly about me. So I was very self-consumed and always had been that way. And this one guy that... Um, really intimidated me. His name was Dennis. He pushed a beer across the kitchen table. The reception was at this person's home. And it never, I never hesitated. Uh, there was no, oh, no, I, I probably shouldn't. Oh, my, I'm only 16. That's not legal. You know, or, um, you know, my mother just got rid of my alcoholic father or something like that. I instinctively knew. And I just reached for that beer and I chugged it back. It didn't like the taste initially. Um, but, you know, <laughs> That's irrelevant because immediately I started to feel an effect. Now, I'm, I've talked to a lot of non-alcoholics um, in my research around my disease, 
And I like asked my mother, you know, what is it like when you drink alcohol? She said, oh, I just I feel kind of calm. I, you know, I'm just I just feel kind of nice. And uh, but she never finishes a glass of anything. She actually lets alcohol sit in a glass, and she'll leave a restaurant. She'll leave a restaurant with alcohol in her glass, which I think is, you know, that that's horrible punishment for that. I don't identify with that. And what happened was that when I sat down at that little kitchen table, I was just a normal little girl who was completely um, troubled and uh, not at peace and very uncomfortable. When I set that glass down after I drank about half of it down, I looked up, and I believe this is what makes me alcoholic. That room had completely changed, and yet nothing had changed. And all of a sudden, I felt like, hmm, Dennis isn't that popular, and um, they're lucky I'm here, you know? And I, all of a sudden, what, what alcohol did for me is that it made me feel comfortable in my own skin. And I honestly felt a sense of settling into myself. And I felt as though I could take a full breath. And I had never done that in 16 years. That's what alcohol did for me. And from that moment on, I chased that feeling. My mother jumped over chairs and people across the room to tear that beer out of my hands because she thinks alcoholism comes from drinking alcohol. And my experience is that I had always been alcoholic and that the consumption of alcohol saved my life. It saved my sanity, there's no question, because I was already at such a point of discomfort that I don't know if I would have considered suicide or what I would have done, but I needed to fill that hole, and I needed to fill it soon. And alcoholism combined with puberty is a bad combination. And you know, it seems like a lot of people, oh, my first drink, I was 16. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, she drove me home, and it was a very warm summer's day, and I had the window down, and the, and the air felt different. And the people on the streets, you know, looked like they were kind of acknowledging me in a positive way. There goes Barb, yeah, glad she's here, you know. And uh, <laughs> it was a beautiful experience. Who wouldn't want to revisit that, really? And uh, she took me home, and she you know, sent me to my room. And I'm an only child, and I'm an alcoholic. Ugh, that's not punishment. I love to isolate. I love to be alone. And I put my little headphones on. They used to look like Princess Leia headphones back before they got those little. <laughs> and I tried to lay down on my bed, and I listened to the cars um, moving in stereo. And the music moved from headphone to headphone. For you young people, it was really cool music. And, um, and I was in heaven, and I had found my solution. I had found what allowed me to be on the planet Earth and walk amongst the Earth people comfortably. That was my solution. And, um, you know, I managed to get through high school. I had a lot of accomplishments, and um, I couldn't drink as much as I wanted to, but I drank as often as I could. And I had a boyfriend that had a mustache and beard, and he could buy alcohol. He was hideous. He was ugly, but he could buy alcohol, so I kept him. And, uh, and that set up sort of a series of my life of choices. And um, I went to college. And in college, I decided that the problem was that I was too active in high school. I had been head cheerleader and all those things to fill the hole. I didn't like cheerleading. I thought, you know, I didn't like to be in, you know, play music and, I, you know, all these things. I thought that I could, if I kept accomplishing things, that somehow I would feel a part of the rest of you. And, you know, I would get like about 15 minutes of, yeah, this is it, this is it. And then it would dissipate and I would be empty again. I'd be empty. If I could have stayed drunk all through high school, I wouldn't have done one darn thing. I wouldn't have gone to class either. I wouldn't have done anything. I would have been completely content. And in college, I met this guy who's sitting in the front row here, and he was a horrible alcoholic. You know those kind of guys. And you girls know those kind of guys. We marry him, 
and, uh, and we pursue them, and we put up with them. And he had a horrible drinking problem. He was a blackout drunk. He'd had DUIs. I had a scooter, and I had to drive him around. We're both, you know, I'm 5'9", he's 6'2", and we're like, on this little tiny scooter around college because he didn't have a driver's license. And he was just darling, and, but he was a drunk. <laughs> and when he drank, which was often, um, I told him not to come around, and he came over to my apartment one night, and, and he was just drunk. And I said, hey, I told you not to come around when you're drunk. He's like, I'm always drunk, you know. And I was like, ah. And uh, he disappeared for a while, and he ended up, he went into treatment briefly. And he, anyway, he's speaking here next week, so you can show up for that side of the story. Um, <laughs> um, and he came back, and eventually he got sober somewhere. I don't know the time frame because I was drinking, but he got sober. And I just adored this guy, but there was something about him that was, that was so sad and so broken that because I had been raised by this alcoholic father, I could not take that risk because the one promise I had made to myself was that I would never be an alcoholic like my father, excuse me, my father, and I would never, ever make the mistake my mother made, which was ending up with a man that was a practicing alcoholic. There's no way because my dad, he may research on drinking, but he really loves researching on the girls. And I thought, I can't live, I can't live like that. And that's what I thought an alcoholic man meant. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> I think it does. Anyway, um, he got sober, and when he was about six months sober, I moved to Southern California, which was going to be my solution because I realized that what was wrong with me was that I lived in Oregon. <laughs> cool people do not live in Oregon, and I fancied myself somewhat cool. So I moved to Southern California, and I ended up in some of the beach communities, and in five years I took a life that was truly full of promise, I felt, and um, I just nosedived it right into the dirt. I mean, it was it was heartbreaking. Um, I had graduated college with a, with a degree in elementary ed, and I got down here, and I realized I don't like kids. So, <laughs> and so it's difficult to secure a job when the main thing you're working with is other people's offspring, and all you want to do is spank them and send them to the other corner of the room. And um, so I, instead of pursuing that, I got a job as a cocktail waitress because that's, you know, that was a comfortable place for me. And I ended up hooking up with this uh, gentleman that had hair longer than mine and spent more time in the bathroom primping himself, you know, and he, a pretty boy that was in the industry. He just thought that was the bomb, and there's nothing wrong with the industry, but I didn't know what the heck that was, you know. I'm from Oregon, you know, and uh, I just wanted to learn how to surf. And he insisted that we move to Hollywood, so we moved over to Camrose, right by the Hollywood Bowl, and I worked over in Westwood. What's that, 11 miles? Had about an hour commute. It was great. It was great. And I proceeded to support this guy as he pursued his career. And we would fight, and it became a very violent, ugly, volatile relationship. And the only time that I had any peace from a situation that I later found out I chose, and I chose to stay in, was when I drank. And I thank God for Trader Joe's, because they had, they had nice alcohol for good prices. And that was my second home. I loved it. And um, during this time... This guy, Chris, had stayed sober, and he called me, and I was visiting a friend down in Laguna Hills, and he said, hey, I'm at my dad's house down over in Temecula. Can I come and see you? And I was like, you know, sure, that would be great. And he and his brother and dad drove over, and he got out of the car. And I'm sure that a lot of you that have some time have watched people come into Alcoholics Anonymous, a broken and sad human being, and watched them just blossom. And it is an, an amazing thing to observe um, I personally think alcoholics are the absolute finest creatures that God ever made. I adore them. Um, but in the throes of the disease, they are the ugliest creatures that can exist. It is just, 
It is heartbreaking. And this young man had five and a half years of sobriety, and when he stepped out of that car, he was wearing his sobriety, you know, beautifully. He was an example of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had this physical sensation that felt like a blast of lightning through the middle of me. And I'm not a romantic, all that stuff. You know, I don't want to have kids. I don't think white picket fences are cool. I'm not, I don't have a hope chest, none of that stuff. I like to drink. I like to party. And, and he got out of his car and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to marry him. I just had this sensation, you know, poor guy. I bet if I'd said it out loud, he would have gotten right back in the car and driven back to Temecula if he knew what was in store. And uh, we drove down to the, to the coast because we were in Laguna Hills, and we drove down through Seal Beach. And he said a lot of stuff. We yacked back and forth. And all I could think was, i got to get with this, you know, because he is fine. He is so gorgeous. I mean, he was just so darn cute. And But he did say something that resonated with me. He said, Barb, you deserve to be happy. And I thought, yeah, and, you know, I do deserve to be happy. And I had never really thought about it, but I was profoundly unhappy. My, um, I had no spiritual connection. I had, I had no connection with God except to say, please don't let me catch that. Please don't let me, you know, suffer these repercussions from my actions um, around my drinking. I was a deal. I would cut deals with God. And it's funny because God never really came through on any of those, but I kept trying, you know, that's insanity, kept trying the same prayers over and over and over, expecting a different outcome. But if you're an alcoholic of my type and you're doing the things that alcoholic women do out there, there's going to be some consequences, and there were. And so I personally felt like God was a pain in my tail, and I had no interest in God whatsoever. I heard a speaker say I knew where God was, and I was just trying to stay the H out of sight, and that was me. I was just trying to stay out of his way and not tick him off anymore. And... um so when Chris said you deserve to be happy, I went back home to my little apartment in the Hollywood Hills over there, and um, I realized that I was not happy and that I was profoundly miserable, and I had no idea that any of what my life had become had anything to do with the disease of alcoholism whatsoever. I had spent my entire life pointing and accusing out there. It was always everyone else's fault. It was the job. It was the boyfriend. It was the town I lived in. It was the way you drived. It was who was ever in office. It was, you know, always something that I had to blame. I had never taken accountability for myself. Not once. Not ever. And, you know, if you throw enough fits, eventually people kind of back away and they, they don't, they're not going to tell you to take accountability. They stay away from you. And as an alcoholic woman, I was deeply immature <laughs> and I was fine with that. Uh, my grandmother used to say to my mom, it's amazing how Barbie's dad affected her so deeply, you know, with this alcoholism. What she didn't realize is that I had the same disease that my father had. And I bent my knees in my little kitchen, on my little kitchen chair, and I said out loud for the first time in my life, I had never prayed out loud ever. When I grew up in the church I grew up in, everyone would gather in a circle, and they'd go around the circle and say a prayer out loud, and it'd get to me, it was like, urch, silence. And they'd wait and wait. They're so patient. And finally, the person on the other side of me would say their little prayer. No way was I going to talk to God out loud or otherwise unless I was cutting a deal. And I bent my knees slightly, and I rested him on that chair, and I said, you know what, God, either this needs to stop or you need to help me because I cannot do this anymore. I can't hit that guy that I'm dating anymore, and he can't hit me anymore. I can't go to work one more time, you know, swollen face from crying and you know, I can't have one more bill that comes in that I've racked up over the limit because I went to a bar and decided that I was somehow, you know, some successful big shot in L.A. Rounds for everyone, you know. <laughs> so I put it on my credit card. I can't even pay my rent, but I'm, I'm treating all of you to shots. And that was, you know, because I really wanted you to perceive me a certain way. I was willing to die for this 
for you to perceive me a certain way. And what I was was a scared little girl. I was absolutely dying in my own skin. And the only relief I ever got was when I would drink five or six drinks. I'd get that start. And then, but what happens is that if I put in five or six drinks, all bets are off. I have to keep drinking. And I know that I'm going to vomit. I know that I'm going to throw up in my hair and that you're going to have to hold my hair back and that I'm going to look a mess and that I'm going to spend all my money and that I'm going to make an ass of myself and that I'm going to upset people and take on bouncers, you know, that are twice my size. But I don't care. You know, who cares? Because I'm willing to go to any lengths to drink alcohol, to have that relief. I have to have that relief. And um, I said that prayer and I realized, you know what, I, I need to get out of L.A. because now L.A. is the problem, which if you're new, for me, that I've been told that's a geographic. The main problem was me. And so every time I would move, the biggest problem would come with me, and that was me. I would move with me. And for a while, I'd get this reprieve, and I'd say, oh, I have a sense of relief. This is the answer. Things are better. And then eventually, I would catch up with me, and once again, I'd start blowing up my life. Uh, so I moved back to Oregon. And... Within uh, three weeks of living with Chris, the cops had been called on me. He always <laughs> he corrects me. They weren't called on us. He was five and a half years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, but they were called on me because I threw a little hissy fit, and the neighbors thought that I was killing him or he was killing me, and I tried to jump out of the car as he was driving down the street because I'm about theatrics. I'm about drawing your attention. You need to feel sorry for me, don't you know? And I'll tell you what, um, <laughs> he said to me one night, he said, uh, because he didn't drink. I said, I just won't drink, and that's really no big deal. I had never in my 28 years of life, in the 12 years that I drank, I never had found it necessary to not drink. That just wasn't, you know. To me, you drink to help what damage you created from drinking, <laughs> you know. So drinking was a solution for me physically. It was a solution for me emotionally. And he said, uh, God, Barb, if you were to drink, what would you do? And I said, now, bear in mind, I just moved to Portland. I couldn't find my way out of a wet sack because I didn't know where anything was in Portland. And I said, well, I'd go down to Santa Fe, have a double shot Corvo Gold with a beer back, and then I'd head over to the Mission Theater, and I'd get some pictures of dark beer and, you know, and just kind of get started. And, and he was kind of quiet. And he said, what would your mother do? And my mom's not alcoholic. And I said, she'd probably order a grasshopper, some sort of funky drink that normies get, I guess. I don't know what that is. Sounds nasty. And... um she would never finish that drink, and which is maddening, like I said. And he said, well, what would your father do? And I said, well, my dad, he'd go down to Santa Fe and have a double shot Corvo Gold with a beer back. And, and I stopped short. And I and in this had never occurred to me in my life. And my grandfather died from alcoholism. My cousin just died from alcoholism. My aunt died in my second year of recovery from alcoholism. My whole family has been ravaged by this disease. And I said, oh, my God, am I an alcoholic? And he said, I, I can't tell you that. It's a self-diagnosed disease. Thanks for teaching him that, you guys. And, you know, and, and which is great because the reality is, is that I would have had that to fall back on. I would have said, well, he said I was, but I didn't agree, and that wasn't my decision, and, you know. And so I called the AA hotline at his suggestion, and an older guy answered. Um, and he said, and I don't know what he said most of the conversation, but he said, what I do remember, what do you want to do? And I said, I need to, I need to have a drink. Because how are you going to make a big decision if you don't have some of your decision-making tools in you, you know? And <clears throat> I'm, I'm now engaged to a sober alcoholic, so there's no alcohol in the house. That's just crazy. I don't know what that is. That's crazy. Um, he didn't have rubbing alcohol. He didn't have vanilla extract. He didn't have, he didn't have anything. There was no hope. And 
uh, that guy, the gentleman on the phone said, I suggest you get to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous now. And I said, well, I'm living with a sober member. And he said, the next day, absolutely. So the next day, two blocks from where I was living in Portland, Oregon, I went to an Alano club, Alano, Alano, however you say it. And um, this club is infamous for um, not honoring singleness of purpose, for people talking about, you know, shooting dope and doing coke and da-da-da. And you know what? I'm an alcoholic and all that, whatever. I mean, you know, I can I can abuse M&Ms like nobody's business. So, you know, I've I've gone to those rooms too. But when I went into that room, I don't know, maybe God was present that day, but everyone in that room talked about alcoholism, and I completely identified. I was caught off guard. I was absolutely carried through that one hour, and everyone in that room shared a little of what it was like, what happened was like now. They talked about alcoholism. They talked about those feelings of difference, apartness. They talked about what happened when they drank alcohol, and they talked about when alcohol stopped working for them. That better be a newcomer. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I'm no authority on any of that stuff. Uh, I still like you. You better thank me, though. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, I immediately fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. However, I knew that I might be alcoholic, but I really wasn't an alcoholic like you guys because I wasn't a blackout drinker. I was more of a brownout drinker. I had a couple lapses of memory, but I really was never had a DUI, didn't go to jail, you know, had all sorts of other dark secrets. I had a lot of stuff that I, no one was ever going to know about me, but that absolutely, um, I didn't identify with that part. And thankfully, someone said, you know, you need to listen for the similarities and not the differences, because I have a disease that tells me I don't have it, and it constantly tells me that my case is different, constantly. Now, that's lessened as I've stayed in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, but, you know, I have a disease that is, you know, rides the short bus. It's not that bright, and it wants me to drink. And for me to drink, maybe I'll die, maybe I won't, but I can tell you that spiritually I will be bankrupt once more. And I, that's the most painful place I've ever been. Um, so I went to my first meetings, meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I tried to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I showed up at meetings that were in the book, and no one was there, you know, things like that. But I made that effort. I did do the steps with someone in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I refused to get an official sponsor. Um, I refused to go to, after 90 and 90, I only went to two meetings a week. This is Barb's program. I'll do it my way. Um, because, once again, I didn't believe I was alcoholic. And for two years, even after having done all of the steps, I, had, I was almost finished with my uh, ninth step for newcomers. That's, you know, going and making amends to people. Don't you worry about that. You're, you're still at the beginning. Don't worry about that. But you'll get there. It's good times. And um, <laughs> and I sat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I can honestly say that I was dying from untreated alcoholism for about two years. Um, and I was becoming more and more uncomfortable in my own skin because, in all honesty, I was doing half measures. I was doing it my way, and I just, I, I never shared people calling me, and I'd say, no, I'm Barbara, I'm alcoholic, I'd like to pass. You know, I, I don't have anything to offer. Um, totally self-consumed, totally just, you know, all about me. Um, the one thing I did do is I made coffee at this one group, and they just said, oh, you make the best coffee ever, you know, which it was the same, you know, three scoops the previous coffee gal had been doing, but they loved me, and I knew that I needed to show up. That's the one thing that I did. And at two years of sobriety, the bottom fell out in my marriage. And I absolutely, I came to a place where, in my mind, I used to think, if this ever happens, I will drink, because you would too. And I had a perfect excuse to drink again. And in fact, he couldn't even blame me for drinking again. 
you know. And uh, I heard an old timer say in, in one of my groups, you know, she said, I don't know if I have another sobriety. I know I have another drunk in me. But I don't know if I have another sobriety in me. And that scared me because I didn't understand that to get here really is a miracle. To get here and stay here is an incredible gift. And I have seen so many people come in and have this gift of Alcoholics Anonymous given to them. You know, all those years of saying, oh, my God, if I just knew what was wrong. Oh, my God, if I could just get a solution. Then you get handed a solution. It's friggin' numbered 1 through 12. It comes in the big book that's kind of tiny. And, you know, and it absolutely has relieved me of this horrific obsession of the mind and body. I mean, I have, I, I can't even believe what this program has done for me. And I bitch and moan, it's too hard. I have to go to meetings. I have to do the steps. I have to get a sponsor. You know, I was just whining. Oh, poor me. And, you know, I mean, it was insanity. And I had just finally made this little leap of asking a woman to be my sponsor. Uh, I mean, God's timing is perfect. And, you know, this is not a religious program, and I am grateful for that because I came in early ticked off at religion. There's no religion here. I wouldn't be here. There's no way. But there is something bigger than myself, and I absolutely stick around for that, and I choose to call it God. And that God that I had found through doing those steps because I had made some movement towards removing what stood between me and God, I had made some of that movement, cleared away some of that, that God saved my butt that day because I went to that my one of my meetings that night and at the seventh step, we have a seventh tradition little break, I stood up and in my mind I thought, F this, I am not doing this anymore. This is not worth it. I did not sign up for this. And I went to the bathroom and I was going to go to the bathroom and I don't know if I was going to go drink or, you know, who knows. In hindsight I can say I was probably going to drink, but more likely I was just going to go and drive off a bridge because that seemed like a quicker way to, to take care of the pain. And that new sponsor followed me to the bathroom, and she said, Barb, what's wrong? And I told her the honest truth about what was going on in my life. And this woman had giant, giant breasts. And she <laughs> enveloped me, and she hugged me. <laughs> and um, I kind of nuzzled into, like, what I would consider, you know, Mrs. Claus, you know, Santa Claus's wife. And uh, <laughs> she just embraced me, and she said, oh, honey, she said, you know, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We'll walk through this. And I believed it. And the reason why I knew that this was true is because she was an alcoholic like me. And she had been in the rooms longer than me and had walked through these things. She went in with her, uh, her boss was seeing a patient one time and she was outside and another patient came in, took a shotgun and blew her boss's head off right in front of her. And her boss was her dear, dear friend. And you know, crap went all over her. She didn't drink, you know. Now that's, that's how I felt. That's what I felt had just happened in my marriage. I mean, I had gray matter all over me. I, I mean, it was a mess. And, you know, she absolutely saved my life. And I had started doing 10, 11, and 12. Like, my life depended on it. And, you know, <clears throat> I would do an inventory in the evening, and I realized I wasn't a loser, that I was doing some things right, that, but I had some things I needed to be accountable for. And what I realized is that I did not need this man. I wanted this man, that he was not the completion of me. And, and that was huge because I had used another human being in my life to complete me or to, you know, keep me feeling like I was uh, worthy or a part of. And, you know, I started on my real journey of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, we have, uh, we have a phenomenal marriage. We've been married almost 15 years. He's my best friend. I absolutely adore him. Um, you know, I respect his program. Both of us suit up and show up for Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, sometimes we do prayer and meditation together, which is a beautiful thing. And, I mean, I, like, actually 
let another human being see me on my knees. It's unbelievable. And that's just huge for someone who was embarrassed to pray in private. Like God's up there going, oh, what a loser. I can't believe Barbara's praying, you know. Like God's, you know, <laughs> judging me. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I, uh, I sponsor a lot of women, and that, you know, has just been an incredible gift. And what that's done for me is that even though I've walked through the steps and continue to live in the steps, um, there's nothing like watching another woman go through the steps to really feed you around Alcoholics Anonymous within that, to have a, you know, newcomer say, well, what do you do for step 11? You know, and say, oh, I just, I just dart out the door and hope God's got my butt. You know, I mean, that's, you know, if you want what I have, and if I have a newcomer and she tries that, I'm, I don't know if she's going to make it. I, I absolutely want to be an example of recovery. It's not that much to give to have this life. I mean, I roll out of bed in the morning, I hit my knees, I do these things because I'm still selfish. I want all of that, what is it, the fourth dimension? Man, I want the whole, the whole thing. Why not? That's, you know, why not have that? Um, you know, I sit and I meditate. I don't meditate for 30 minutes. If you do, that's great. I just, I just don't. I have. Um, but lately it's just been a little bit shorter and so far God hasn't blasted me, you know, as I walk out the door, not enough time, you know, not okay. Um, you know, and I pick up the phone when, when people call me, I call my sponsor, um, I have service commitments, I go to four or five meetings a week and I, I do the deal. Um, I was told to stay in the middle of the pack because any of us that got on the periphery are likely to get picked off and, and I've seen that to be true. Um, I watch National Geographic, and it even happens to the caribou. So I believe that I'm not exempt from that. Um, I can say to you that in my almost 15 years of recovery, um, you know, I have not found it necessary to drink through any of the things that have been handed to me. Um, when I was uh, almost 38 years old, I fell down a flight of stairs and sober, finally, fell down a flight of stairs, sober. <laughs> Wish I would have done it drunk because it really hurt. And it was uh, awful. And within a few weeks, I started to feel really, really sick and dizzy and uh, nauseous. And for three and a half years, I went to doctors. And they, these doctors would say, well, but you look healthy. I'm not suffering from acne. I have something wrong with me inside. Um, and they treated me. And, and often I would have to preface by saying, I'm not here for meds. You know, I'm not here for meds. I don't feel well. And I had MRIs, etc. Finally, a year and a half ago, uh, I finally got lesions on my brain. Never been so excited. And they said, you have multiple sclerosis, which is a really popular thing that we do up in <laughs> Portland. I don't know why. Everyone has multiple sclerosis up in the north up there. I think it's the lack of sunshine. So if you're thinking about moving up there, don't do it. Or bring a sunbox or something. And, um, you know, so every day I have to inject myself with this medication. So now I'm an IV drug user. And that's very exciting. I don't know how you guys did it if you did drugs, because that is one painful, awful pain in the tail, let me tell you. And, you know, I didn't have to drink. I mean, a doctor turned to me and said, you have multiple sclerosis. I didn't even have 10 years of sobriety. I didn't even get to have 10 years of sobriety. And, you know, and I, I lose feeling in my hands. I have incontinence. That's sexy. You know, there's nothing like that. You know, I can't even jog without, anyway, it's just awful. And uh, sometimes my vision disappears, and, you know, I just have all sorts of bouts of, of health problems. And, like, this arm's twitching right now, and I can't feel this hand. And you'd never know by looking at me, would you? And I'll tell you what, I bet a drink wouldn't make it better. I guarantee a six-pack would not help that. And <clears throat> a few years ago, the worst thing that ever happened to me in recovery was that uh, in early sobriety, I got a dog. And that was on my fear list, dogs. They, I like to lead with the face when I'm drinking. And they would bite me. 
And so I've been bitten five times. And, you know, that's practicing insanity, by the way. And <laughs> so Chris had a brilliant idea, and we got a puppy. So, you know, I did the steps around it. I, I gave it over to God, and then I got into action got a puppy. And uh, I'll tell you what, I, I typically don't do a frontal assault to things, but that is one way to get over your fear of dogs, no question. And your fear of poop and cleaning up pee and going to the vet and, and financial insecurity, it's a lot of work. And this beautiful dog who taught me how to do a 10-step, you know, to immediately make amends because I used to go ballistic on him as he do things that you're not supposed to do inside. And, um, I mean, I learned so much. And someone said, you know, dog is God spelled backwards. And I thought, oh, you know. And I actually experienced unconditional love for the first time in my life. And I gave this unconditional love. And so, you know, what has happened for me is that I have actually been able to have these phenomenal connections. And like someone said from the podium earlier, you know, um, I've learned how to love and, I, and I've learned how to let you love me. It's just remarkable. And a few years ago, we had to put that dog down. And uh, the vet came to our house and, and, um, and I laid there and, and I sang Rockabye Baby. I told him when he passed away, I'd sing Rockabye Baby. In the treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. And this beautiful little dog disappeared. His little soul just went, foomp, and his little body was finally at peace. He'd been so sick. And um, I have never cried so hard in my life. I have never felt that kind of pain. I, I could never have fathomed walking through that sober. There's no way. There is no way. Because I don't have children. That's my baby. And um, they carried him out on a little stretcher. And a couple days later, I got a little box <laughs> with ashes in it. And, you know, he's up on top of my refrigerator in a cookie jar, my dog Bob. And I absolutely, <laughs> I just can't believe I walked through that sober. You know, for the people that are new, I don't know, you might think I'm an old dork up here, you know, what's up? And I break out in hives when I speak. And, you know, what's the, what's the attraction? I'm flop sweating up here, by the way, too. You don't want to know where. It's just awful. And, uh, but I can tell you that, that I am a girl that, that never, ever smiled in the last years. Um, I was not happy, joyous, and free. I, I did not, I, I was terrified that I would live to see 30. And I'm 43. So, you know, what has happened for me is that, Alcoholics Anonymous has absolutely set me free. I walk on the planet completely free. I mean, I'm completely free. And I don't mean just the physical freedom. I mean, spiritually and emotionally, I am free. I'm not afraid to walk down the sidewalk, even here in Hollywood, and bump into anyone. I have cleaned up everything. I have cleaned up all my wreckage, everything I have ever done. You know, I got to go to Europe, and I got to go see where all my family members who didn't have the guts to come over stayed, you know, in Germany. Ugh. Horrible. Thank God they came here. And, you know, I flew, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, across the ocean. Those things are huge. And, you know, I had all these dreams of being an artist. Um, and I lived in L.A. for five years. I didn't do one one piece of artwork. And now I have my artwork in a, um, you know, a place in, L in uh, Portland. And they're selling my artwork. Like, they can't keep up with it. And, and guess what I paint? Dogs. I do big, giant dogs, and uh, and I also make jewelry. And, you know, I just want to say, for those of you that are new, that it's hard to put into words what is here in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I don't have to tell you what's out there. I mean, hello, you know, the, this is the best deal in town. I hope you guys keep coming back, um, and I hope you find your answer here and look for the similarities and just keep suiting up and showing, showing up. All that's refundable. I guarantee it. I've watched a lot of people go back out there. But God, I hope I come back here next year. And I see this, I mean, this beautiful row right here just makes me want to cry. I hope you guys are here and all, all the other new people too. Thanks.
Do I say questions? Okay. Right now? Oh, okay. Oh, any questions? Oh, oh, jeez. Yes, Chris. Oh, did you all hear that? No. <laughs> he asked, uh, he said, I mentioned I went to four or five meetings a week and what is, uh, you know, what are those meetings like and what would I recommend maybe to newcomers? I don't have any recommendations. I have some suggestions, um, for newcomers. Um, the meetings that I go to are, uh, primary purpose and they're singleness of purpose. Um, we, we, we just love the newcomers because obviously I can't keep this thing unless I give it away. Um, and in the meetings I go to, we identify ourselves only as alcoholics because it's an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, so we honor that. Um, and we're actually very, very quiet. <laughs> um, my home group on Saturday night has 400 people, and you could hear a pin drop during the seventh tradition. And the reason why I find that to be so powerful and important is because it's not my choice. I don't get to decide what people do or don't hear in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I always go tinkle before the meeting. I have MS. I mean, I could pee myself right now very easily because I have, you know, incontinence. But I'll tell you what, I do not get up during a meeting and go to the bathroom. That's that's me. That's what I do because I am so easily distracted and disrupted. And I don't want to be that person that walks in front of the newcomer right as they need to, they, that one thing that they might have connected to because I'm not sure how God works. Um, I also go to some closed meetings, and I find that to be a wonderful place to be in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, where everyone is, is just an alcoholic. <clears throat> and, you know, we have in my home group service, and people are very active in service. And, you know, what it is for me is being an only child. I have found a family in Alcoholics Anonymous, and my home group has become that family. And i got to tell you, I, I cannot believe a girl like me can pick up the phone and someone these days call her ID. They know it's me, and they say, hello. You know, they're actually willing to pick it up, and, and they're actually interested in me, and, there's, and most of the time I'm really interested in them, and that's remarkable. And I find the place that I get to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in my meetings, in my home group, um, I absolutely believe that I would not stay sober if I did not have that place to go and be of service and, and give it away. Does that cover any of it? Okay. Yes. Right. He asked about um, some of the habits that we have, like not getting up and using the restroom, and <laughs> how do you make suggestions to newcomers or old-timers and make that something that they're receptive to. I can't. <laughs> um, you know, this is a program of attraction, so I, I periodically mention it from the podium. Um, certainly my girls, I pull aside privately the women that I sponsor, and I ask them to please tell their sponsees, and my husband tells his sponsees. Um, and, you know, this is a, a very loving program. I'm, I'm not here to reprimand anyone or make them feel ashamed. Or My God, I have a gal that I sponsor has one kidney. She's got to get up and go to the bathroom halfway through the meeting. And I let people know. I'm like, Kimmy's only got one kidney. You know, I'm totally <laughs> defending her. And she feels terrible. She skitters out at two feet above the ground because she feels, you know, very bad about it. But she's very considerate about it. But here's the interesting thing. We have these 400 people. This meeting started out like maybe 75 people, and there was a lot of movement, and there was a lot of, but the core, the home group members, um, you know, just we've all kind of communicated what we consider as our group conscience. And so we just 
do it by attraction. And, you know, I, I mean, I guess if I model it, I hope that, I know for me, that this is a program of attraction. So if people are doing that, um, people are going to see that. I mean, this isn't a place where people are going to feel bad. How hard is it to just stay seated and to be respectful and to, you know, pay attention to someone who's at the podium? I don't understand how that's a problem. When I was in college, I didn't sit there and talk to people when the professor was up there. You know, when I went to church as a kid, when the pastor was talking, I, I wasn't squirming all around and, you know, and, you know, and that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, this is my church, you know, respect it. This is where I live. This is where I find sobriety. This is the most important thing in my life. Nothing comes before this. So, you know, I guess to answer your question, because I'm a girl <laughs> and I can never get to the point, never put me on the stand for any jury or any situation, um, I would say lead by example and make sure your babies do the same. And I think that that, why not, you know? Doesn't it seem more appealing, you guys, with not all the movement and talking? Newcomers are nodding, so that's cool. Anyone else? Oh, oh, Marilyn. <laughs> She said, um, she asked me how I take newcomers um, through the steps as a sponsor. Um, what I do is I have my girls meet me at Starbucks, my new bar. <laughs> and um, we do one, two, and three, usually in the car or somewhere private. And then I have them go into the bathroom with me. Uh, at Starbucks, we lock the door and we get on our knees at, in the Starbucks bathroom. So if you work at Starbucks, please clean the floors because they're pretty dirty. Um, but I find that it's just a beautiful place of humility. And humility for the newcomers doesn't mean being humiliated. It's just being right size. You know, it's no big deal. Just hit your damn knees. You know, let's just let's just talk to God. And um, and then I show them in the big book the fourth step and how it's laid out. I don't. I do everything straight out of the big book. That's our text. And I was told text is how you do stuff. I bought textbooks in college, and we studied textbooks, you know, and that's how we passed the class. And so the big book is our text. And I have them lay it out exactly as it's laid out in the big book. Um, I have them do the columns, and I have them leave a little column at the end because there is a little something called their part, and I'd like them to know about that because you can't do diddly about anyone else, but you certainly can work on yourself. That's my experience. And... Um, I take them up to this really tall, beautiful place in Portland called Council Crest and have them read their fifth step to me. And it's for me, it's a spiritual place. And people have their dogs running around. There's a view of the city in Mount Hood, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And they read their fifth step. And I take them through six and seven, have them, you know, reflect on what it is they're doing. Um, and I actually help my girls put their list together because I find a lot of people think everything's their fault or nothing's their fault. And because, you know, I'm a little bit ahead of them in what I've experienced in AA, I find, I feel it's my responsibility to kind of help them realize how to put that step together. And, um, and I also help them with step nine. Anytime that they're, if they can't find someone or they can't meet them face to face, if they do a letter, I want to hear what you're going to write in that letter. I want, if you're going to meet someone face to face, I want to know what you plan on saying. I actually have some girls scripted out because I don't know about you, but I get a little retarded when I'm up against the monster that I've been carrying with me, whether it's a person or a situation. And 10, 11, and 12, uh, the big book is beautiful on that, and I also like the 12 and 12. Um, I find the 12 and 12 elaborates, and I know some people don't like that, um, but I like to elaborate, so I dig the 12 and 12. Um, and I have, like I have a gal in Hawaii right now that is just coming out of her skin because she can't find any really singleness of purpose meetings, and I'm having her do a nightly 10th step, and she's just found that to be a beautiful thing. She'd never done that. Um, and you know, in step 11, I don't care how you come to God, 
but it better not be you, you know. Don't come to yourself for any guidance. Take it to something outside of yourself. And I frankly, I could care less what someone chooses as their higher power. I hope it's not the tree outside of my home group because, you know, we have lightning and things fall over, but whatever. Um, I don't care, but find a higher power. And, you know, my suggestion is, like the book, to try to improve that conscious contact. And I find that through prayer and meditation. That's what works for me. And I don't do it perfectly because there's no such thing. And in 12, I want my girls to sponsor. And if they can't sponsor for some reason, you know, um, I expect them to be of service. And I expect them to pick up that phone. And please don't call me and take me hostage every day, you know. I'm not your higher power. <laughs> they like to do that a lot. And, um, you know, in variations within that, there's there's so much. Um, but I'm on them a lot, but I do not tell my girls what to do. <clears throat> I tell them what I did. And I'm still sober, so maybe it works. Um, last question. Yes. When I got MS what? Huh. With a, when I got diagnosed with MS, <clears throat> what was my conversation with my higher power? I don't think I can say that from the podium. Um, so upset. Still, still struggling. Um, you know, as a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous, I feel you should not be diagnosed with <laughs> anything chronic. Um, the reality is I've watched a lot of people um, get diagnosed with cancer and, and have miscarriages and, you know, on and on. I was told life is in session and, um, you know, and, and I'm in that life. I'm walking amongst the earth people and things are going to happen. And I really, really have struggled. Um, I like to do this thing where I'm like, um, if God exists, that's my new one, if God exists. Uh, here I am almost 15 years sober married almost 15 years, comfortable in my own skin almost all the time. I have a wealth of friends. I have a place I can go that loves me unconditionally. I have a program of living that works 100% when I use it. I have a connection to God, and, and I feel comfortable with that connection. Um, and, I'm, and I'm thinking maybe God doesn't exist, and maybe he's punishing me. Um, I hope that that's not the way he operates. If that's the case, we're all screwed because <laughs> if he operates that way, I don't know about you guys, but I did some naughty stuff out there, and if this is what he does, then you all better start hiding because I'll tell you what, um, I, that, I can't live sober with that kind of God. So, you know, what I do is I continue to act as if, and I do things regardless of what happens in my life. My program absolutely comes first. So even with the diagnosis, I roll out of bed, and, and I really roll funny now, kind of out of bed now because my body's all funky when I sleep. I still hit my knees. I ask them to let me be of service. I ask them to help me stay sober. It's the same thing that I did when I was in my first year, my fifth year, my tenth year. Nothing has changed, yet everything has changed. And um, I'll tell you what, I haven't drank. And um, and I haven't killed myself um, and I've been told, what's interesting is that I've had so many women come to me and say, yeah, I have fibromyalgia, I have multiple sclerosis, I have cancer, I have... Um, so what has happened is that my life that I thought was so full and broad has actually broadened more. And the area that I'm of service in has actually become deeper and more beautiful because um, now I have this opportunity to connect with people and know what it feels like to truly be human and vulnerable and, um, and know that this thing is just temporary. You know, and I'm so glad that I'm doing it sober. Why not? So thanks you guys so much. It's great to be here.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.